Hey, don't say anything you'll regret. Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. Uh, thank you for joining us again. Another beautiful Friday in the big town. So far, it's pretty nice weather, although I heard that uh, it's going to rain for like the next week, which is just a real buzzkill. Uh, man, I mean, I need some rain. Everyone's plants and grass and, you know, my garden needs some rain. But I was hoping to uh, build a shed in the next week. And I'm just very thankful I have not ordered the supplies so they can't just sit in my lawn and rot. Joining me today, of course, is uh, Scott Melson. Hello, sir. What's up, dude? What's up? And Bailey Perkins. Hello, Bailey. Thanks for being here. Um, woo, what a week. It's another week in the state legislature. It's not the last week yet, but we're getting closer and closer. Two weeks from today is the deadline. That's signy die that will have to be gone. Uh, and so sometime in the next two weeks, we'll get to finally say those fun words. Uh, but before then, important news this week. The state legislature passed all the redistricting maps, sent them to the governor who signed them. So that is uh, signed, sealed, and put on pause until the fall when they come back to redraw them and draw the congressional maps. So at least for a few months, listeners, you can have me not talk about redistricting uh, as much. But perhaps uh, more importantly, there a budget deal has reportedly been reached, uh, at least an overarching budget deal. We will talk more about that um, later on in the show. But first, we have two special guests joining us today. Uh, we have Jeffrey Long, who is the Director of Risk Management and Legal Affairs, and his colleague Josh Cockroft, who is the Senior Director of Government Affairs. Listeners, you may remember Josh Cockroft, former state representative. Uh, good to see you both. They are here from uh, the, is it the Oklahoma Association of Realtors. Is that correct? That's correct. I didn't want to give you a wrong name. Um, and I think we've all seen commercials where the announcer enunciates realtor. Um, I don't know the proper pronunciation, yeah. but we also have friends that are just realtors. And here in Oklahoma, I think we just say realtors. That was actually going to be my first question. Is it is it realtor or realtor? <laughs> well, so as long as it's got two syllables, you're on the right track. So realtor or realtor is correct. Realtor is not correct. And that's the battle that we always have to fight is, uh, is that one there. We like to say that, you know, if I get sick, I go to the doctor, not the doctor. So if I want to sell my house, I go to a realtor, not a realtor. So that's, yeah, you're, you're on the right track either way. My fiance used to work for Oakmar and that was something that I learned from him that he corrected me on was taking that A out in the pronunciation of it. And so I know how, how serious that is for realtors. Absolutely. So word is Josh just messaged me. Evidently the power just went out at the office. So oh, no. what timing, what timing. So hopefully he can jump back on if that'll come back up momentarily. Uh, I mean, it is windy today, so it's normal. We'd have power outages and a state note for wind. Why, why should our infrastructure support that? Right. Uh, well, uh, hopefully he will be able to join us back in a few minutes until then, Jeffrey, it's just you. You're on the, the, spot. the pressure is high now. So the reason that you guys are on here, one, is that um, the real estate market in Oklahoma, like a lot of places, but let's talk about it here, it's going through some, I don't know if growing pains is the right word, but there's, um, let's get like an update on what the real estate market looks like and we'll start there. Yeah, it's wild um, is probably one of the, the best ways I can start to describe it. And, you know, if you flash back about what month is it now? Because it feels like uh, it's been an eternity. But, 
you know, a year ago, roughly um, a little bit before that, obviously we started to shut things down with COVID and there was this big concern that the real estate market is just going to tank. It's going to just be an absolute nightmare. But after that initial shutdown happened, things just went insane. Um, property value started shooting up. The demand for houses started shooting up. But at the same time, we didn't have as many people selling houses. And so we've got this really low inventory problem that is just not catching up at all. So we have this weird scenario where almost every house that comes up for sale is getting multiple offers. And when I say multiple, I'm talking 12, 15, 20 offers over the course of a couple of days. And they're selling for 10, 15, $20,000 over their list price, which becomes an issue for lending and appraisals and all that. Uh, but man, it's just, it's really tough out there. If you're trying to sell a house. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, you couldn't do it any quicker. Uh, but if you want to buy a house, it's tough out there. It's really tough. We don't have the builders building quite as many houses because the supply chain is all screwed up. Lumber Lumber's is going up, up right? Oh, yeah. like 400%. I mean, and everything is. I guess we're just seeing this rapid increase in everything. And so it's really hard to buy a house. You know, I feel, I really feel bad for the first time home buyers that are trying to get into the real estate market because it's just so hard now. And, and so it's, it's just, that inventory is incredibly low. I mean, incredibly low, all-time lows, um, and yet property values are really high. So just kind of a weird scenario there that we're, we're struggling to deal with. Well, and it's interesting that you raise that because I am in that boat of becoming a first-time home buyer who is building a home. And uh, the fact that we waited one week before considering whether or not we wanted to make that move and putting our down payment down uh, meant that we paid 4,000 more than we would have paid if we would have waited one week. And so, um, yeah, we learned the hard way of um, how real um, the the supply chain issues are right now and in, in, in the growth in the, in the markets and stuff. So, yeah, absolutely. So when did you, when did things kind of start to pick back up? Cause I, I uh, personally experienced the, the, havoc that covid uh wreaked on on the real estate market last year so if you remember that thunder game where one of the jazz tested positive so uh my wife and i went under contract to sell our home literally a week to the day before that thunder game and i i spent um i spent the next uh, four weeks after that convinced that everyone was going to lose their jobs and we would our contract would fall through and we'd never sell our house fortunately none of that happened um, uh, but then we, uh, you know, we, we were able to get our house sold and, and we got in a, in a new house in July when we were, when we were buying, um, it, it really hadn't kind of picked up like this yet. It, it hadn't, it hadn't started this takeoff hadn't happened. When did that, when did really things start to get hot? You know, it, it did start to happen relatively quickly. I don't know that I could pin it on a month because that thunder game you mentioned, like what a surreal moment, right? Like that was sort of the first moment that all of a sudden this COVID pandemic thing got real, uh, where it was being talked about, but then all of a sudden that was such a crazy time. And, and one of the things that we were concerned about was, you know, the real estate market just in Oklahoma, I mean, we're talking billions of dollars of real estate being bought and sold every year. And that's a major driver of our economy. And so we worked really hard to make sure that real estate services could maintain an, uh, you know, an essential status in the state of Oklahoma. My house, real estate, those kinds of problem. And so, um, 
you know, really shortly after that, after we got real estate. Can you repeat what you just said? Cause we lost it a little bit. Oh, sorry about that. It's okay. So, um, you know, right after the pandemic started to happen here, right around that, that thunder game time, we worked real hard to make sure that real estate services were essential services uh, because of all the properties buying and selling people relocating. I mean, that has to continue. We can't just shut that down for months at a time. People have to have housing. And so we, we achieved that. So at least those services could continue going. Um, and it was really shortly after that, that people kept buying because people were wanting to buy, but people started to get a little nervous about listing. And so we worked real hard to try to put out some, you know, best practices for how can you show houses safely during this time? We were working on that, but it, it the buying kept continuing, right? People were still needing to buy houses, but we had less people wanting to list at that moment. And I think that's when we started to um, really get into that competitive market because the the listing started to dry up a little bit and it just got more and more competitive and it's just never caught up to where we're at now where it's just progressively over the last year gotten crazier and crazier. So I, I appreciate that we've touched on a couple of things. One, that it is you know, just difficult for first-time home buyers, and I like that just conveniently Bailey and Scott are kind of on, can provide that personal experience on two ends of the spectrum. Um, the fact that, like you mentioned, the impact on um, on uh, appraisals and um, and all the other things that go into it. It's not just that someone sells a house for more and gets more money, but and someone else has to pay more. But it like affects the process by which things work, right? And that like anyone who has ever bought a house knows it. If it, even in a standard like thirty day period it is just the worst like it's so hectic every time there's always something that goes wrong at the last minute and you're always worried your closing date's gonna get pushed back or they always want one more document uh, and so for this kind of stuff to happen something that is very good for one party ends up being very bad for the other which man that's i mean this is a political podcast that's a political <laughs> thing that happens all the time um, so as we've talked about some of the um, impact on uh, on lenders, um, let's talk about uh, evictions and what that looks like. Yeah, this has been really interesting um, and it's a little convoluted, right? So if we start, we'll start where we're at today with sort of recent news because what people have seen in the last week or so, there was a federal lawsuit filed challenging the CDC's eviction moratorium. And there was a federal judge that has for all intents and purposes said that that's unenforceable, right? That the CDC doesn't have jurisdiction to tell homeowners that they can't evict tenants from their property. But we still have that eviction moratorium in place because that judge has issued a stay of that order while it's being appealed. So that is not settled yet. So I would encourage people if they um, have tenants that are within that category of, of people protected by that CDC moratorium, that has not been fully struck down at this point. So that's still something that's going on that's still yet to be resolved, but it is a narrow class of people. I mean, there's all these, these categories that you fit within if you're, it's just not, it's not all evictions. Um, it's only if people are protected within certain categories under the CDC rule. So it's not just broadly everybody, but on top of that, we also have other restrictions that are in place for, um, you know, these eviction moratoriums. For example, if you own a property that is uh, backed by Freddie, May, uh, Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae, um, those also fit within a category where there are eviction moratoriums in place. 
Um, but they also offer some help for the the homeowners, the the landlords in that case, where you can defer your payments to the back end of your mortgage. So they're they're taking a little bit different approach, where the CDC's order provides no protection for the landlords. And I think that was the biggest problem with theirs is that there's no protections. And then in some cases, there's also state-based eviction moratoriums, although we haven't had that in Oklahoma, it's only been these federal ones. So it's still a little convoluted out there. Those, those Freddie and Fannie ones extend until June, at the end of June at this point. And we're still waiting to see what ends up happening with that CDC one. So that'll be kind of interesting to, to see how that, that goes, but it's been a real problem for the landlords. That's, that's really, a major issue and we've heard anecdotally some stories of people seeming to try to abuse the the moratorium a little bit but you know those are kind of anecdotal stories but i mean look the, the problem is landlords it's not like we're just talking about like major pension funds and people with millions of dollars and they can just you know this homes that people are renting are oftentimes retirement plans for people right this is people who are living off that rental income that has just stopped for months and months and they still have maintenance on the properties. They're still trying to live off that rent in many cases. And so it's a real problem for just average people out there who are trying to invest in real estate. And that's one of the ma major issues we've seen. And there, there's been some resources available from the federal government, I think last year, maybe this year too, for both homeowners and for renters, right? It's just one or the other. Yeah. So most of it has been, you know, with, with regard to the homeowners, it's been, you know, mortgage modification type things, right? So you can have a forbearance on paying back your, your mortgage and they'll put those payments on the end of your mortgage, uh, which is, which is a good thing that if you're in a place where you can't pay that. So that's been helpful. Um, you know, the moratoriums are one of the major benefits that they've had for, uh, the the tenants and the, the renters. And we've started to see some money allocated for rental assistance. You know, we want to see rental assistance for the homeowners because those are the ones who aren't getting paid that are, again, trying to live off this, keep the properties up so housing can be provided. And that's what we're really trying to push to see more of. Um, I think Josh maybe knows some specifics as well about some of that, that those resources that are available, but more and more rental assistance is what we on a national level have really been trying to push for. And it's, it's not a lot, but it's, it's, we've at least seen some of it. Yeah. So who, you mentioned that like, not everybody is eligible for the eviction moratorium. Like who, who qualifies for the moratoriums? Yeah. So on the, the CDC's order, the people that qualify, it's, you have to fit with one of three categories. Um, it starts with if you earn no more than $99,000 as an individual or $198,000 in 2020, um, you could fit within it. Um, if you have not been required to report any income to the IRS in 2020, you could fit within that CDC moratorium or if you've received a stimulus check. So it is pretty broad, right? That covers a lot of people. I mean, that's 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 a huge chunk of people. But then the CDC also has this process where you're, you're required to have that tenant file or sign a CDC eviction ban declaration. And that says that the, the tenant is using their best efforts to obtain any government assistance for housing, that they're unable to pay their rent due to a substantial loss in income, that they're making their best efforts to make timely payments of rent, and that they would become homeless or have to move to a shared living setting if they were to be evicted. So that's what really narrows it down is, is that declaration that that tenant's supposed to file. Um, but I don't know that people know that, right? This is just the, the landlords here eviction moratorium, but they don't know there's this process. And as far as enforcement, you know, I don't, 
that's the other side of it is if somebody's lying on the form, I mean, I don't know that there's necessarily a lot of uh, enforcement that could be done, except that if you find out that's not true, then presumably you could continue on with an eviction at that point if it became necessary. So I have a question about design of the rental assistance programs, because um, one concern that I have is what protections exist for the renter if those dollars do go to the homeowner and then the homeowner still evict the person. So in the current design of the uh, rental assistance programs, do those dollars go directly to the homeowner or how does that work for like, for example, um, the, the city of Oklahoma City, I believe has a um, pot of funds for, for rental assistance and, and a couple of other uh, communities across the state. So, so how do those programs work with that federal assistance? Yeah, so they, they should be protecting both parties if, if one receives funding, right? So if the tenant receives funding, they're supposed to pay that to the landlord right. for paying their rent. Right. And in response to that, then the landlord wouldn't evict them. Um, if the homeowner is getting that rental assistance, then they should, and in most of the cases, these are restricting you then from evicting the tenant. So as, as an example, um, going back to that Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae mortgage-backed uh, properties, specifically to their multifamily properties. So if it's an apartment complex or, uh, you know, condos, those kinds of things, their restriction says that if you are um, modifying your mortgage, so you're not paying your, your, your mortgage at this point, you're in a forbearance state, then you can't evict people. So we're, we're happy to give you the assistance that you need by delaying your payments to the end of your mortgage. But if you're going to do that, then you can't evict people. So that we, we do see that protection where if somebody's getting paid, then they're not going to be able to, to evict somebody based on that. Sure. Yeah, this is a tough issue. And like, I, I, I think it's tough on, on both sides because like on the one hand, I absolutely, I mean, I hear what you're saying, you know, like, um, it, you know, it's not like all the real estate is, you know, like you said, they're not owned by, you know, venture capital or private equity or like, you know, firms that are worth hundreds of millions that own, you know, tens of thousands of units across the country. Like a lot of, a lot of the, the units that we're talking about are owned by, you know, maybe a couple who's, who's trying to have 10, 20, 30 units and that's their retirement plan or they're living off that income. And it's just been cut out from under them. And that's, that's not fair on the flip side the same could be said of the people who are living in the units right because presumably if if they had their income they would be paying their rent and so on the one hand it's like um i i i understand i understand and agree with the impulse of the like eviction moratorium like i i agree we shouldn't be we shouldn't be casting people out of their homes and in the middle of a, a pandemic when they've lost their job or whatever through through no fault of their own but at the same time i think you do have to protect these people who like this is their this is their business and this is their this is their livelihood um and so i you know it's it sounds like there are some protections there but kind of my understanding is that from the outset the eviction moratorium the whole thing just wasn't designed as well as it could have been you know um, um, it, sh it should have been designed with those kind of protections in mind. Like it is both critical that we keep people in their homes, but it's also critical that people be able to, you know, um, you know, protect people that are like, Hey, I, you know, I have to pay. And I, and I understand there's people that would say like, well, you know, it's an investment. So if you can't, you know, if your investment loses money, like that's part of the game of capitalism. That's not really true in this case, because like normally if somebody stops paying their rent, right. You'd, 
you'd go find a new tenant. But if you're not allowed to do that, then I feel like the government should come in and 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 provide some protection for them too. And Scott, and one other piece related to that is, you know, landlords have to use parts of that money that they receive for maintenance of the home. Yeah. You know, if yeah. that refrigerator stops working or if there's, you know, um, a, a pipe that needs to be repaired. And, and so if, that do- if those dollars aren't coming in, then those repairs can't be made for the renters. And so there, a, a conundrum is created in these moments if, if those monies aren't getting to the homeowners to then help support the renters. And so I, I agree that we're in a time where um, lawmakers had to quickly put together policy. And it's one of the reasons why policy is often slow. <laughs> so we can think about all the factors. And, and so I think this is just one of the consequences of having to quickly try to put something together uh, to be able to, to move immediately. And so that is one of the areas that's missing. Could you talk more about um, the recommendations that uh, the Association of Realtors are pushing forward um, about, so is that at the federal level, is there a specific bill that people could look at or? Um, I don't know if I can point you to any particular bills, but the our national association has put forth a lot of effort towards, you know, when they're doing these appropriations for, um, you know, various types of, of, of the CARES Act and all these sorts of things that were, the, the money that was coming out, the stimulus, all that they were just really pushing to have money allocated for rental assistance and in particular for landlords, right? Because the idea being that if we can give the landlords money and say, you can't evict people, but we're going to make sure that you can still pay the bills and pay your mortgage and so forth. You know, so that's really what we've been been pushing for is some protections on that other end, because, you know, this was so convoluted when it initially started and it was so chaotic, right? And, and we said, okay, well, we're just gonna, across the board, if you've got a federally backed mortgage, you can have a forbearance for six months at first, potentially up to 12 months. And when that first happened, it was looking like, but all your payments were going to become due as soon as, you know, that forbearance ended, which is crazy. If you've lost your job and you can't pay your mortgage for six months, what makes you think you're going to have six months of payments at the end of that all of a sudden, right? That's, that doesn't make any sense. So that finally got worked out where we could tack those on at the end of the mortgage, which obviously makes a little bit more sense. And then, you know, we had these eviction moratoriums coming in place, but then the question was, how are we protecting the landlords? And, or if it's, if they've got a mortgage on that rental property and they can modify that, move that towards the back of their, their mortgage. But the problem is there are still people living off that rental income. There's still people that need to do maintenance. If the AC goes out and they don't have the money to fix it, you know, what are they going to do? So it becomes unsustainable to have a year and a half of letting people live in a property, not paying rent. And like, I, I don't have any money coming in. And so that's one of the reasons we were looking at really pushing for some of that federal money to come towards the the homeowners, the landlords, because that would serve better to protect both of the parties in that landlord tenant relationship. Sure. Well, on a similar note, um, and I know Josh is for listeners who can't see us right now, Josh has come on and, and got bumped off again. And so um, it may fall to you, Jeffrey, to tell us about what the association's legislative agenda is at the state level. Do you feel equipped to talk about that? I'm sure um, you do. I'll, just... I'll do my best. I'll do <laughs> right. my best. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit. I know we're we're near the end of session, and I know that there's a yeah. I know that there's a, a day at the Capitol next Wednesday um, for for realtors across the state, and, and that kind of dovetails in with with your policy agenda um, for right now. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, so you know we're a large association. Um, we're twelve thousand seven hundred members strong across the state of Oklahoma. Um, everybody knows a realtor, right? Every community's got them, and and we're a big group. And by that, we've got a big voice. And so we like to make sure that we're 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 doing a lot of advocacy, and that's at the local level, the state level, and the federal level. And and our organization in particular, the the Oklahoma Association of Realtors, we do all of our advocacy at the state level. And so every year we like to have a, what we call a capital conference where we bring our members in, we talk about various advocacy related things, some education, and then we go have a day at the Capitol. Of course, this year with sort of the restrictions and everything, it was a little more complicated. So we've had to kind of split that off, but we're finally getting to do that next week to have our members come in. And, and the idea is, look, I can go to a legislator or Josh, or we can, you know, hire but to actually hear from their constituents in their district, right? That's who legislators like to hear from. So we want to get our members in front of them who know these people, their neighbors with these legislators to talk to them about the stuff that's important to, to realtors. And these are protecting private property rights. Um, this is protecting things like these landlord tenant relationships. Um, it, it even gets into some, you know, tax issues and things like that. We have a broad range of things that we look at. One of the things this year that was our biggest priority was some legislation dealing with what's called wholesaling. And I can try to explain this really quickly in a simple way. So if you are helping somebody, if I'm going to help one of you guys sell your house or help you buy a house, the law says I have to have a real estate license, right? That's that's what we do. And we do that to protect the public. That protects you so that if I screw up and do something wrong, you can go to the Oklahoma Real Estate Commission, file a complaint, and they can sanction me, take my license away if it's bad enough. And they also prescribe all these duties and responsibilities and how I go about helping you and provide that service. Well, there's this thing called wholesaling. And what this is, is somebody will come to a person selling their house and say, I want to buy your house. I want a contract on your house. And they'll enter into a contract to purchase that house. But in reality, they have no intention of actually closing on the property. Instead, what they do is they take that contract and try to sell that to somebody else. So they're just acting as a middleman to try to sell that contract to somebody else. And to do that, you don't actually have to have a license as the law sits right now. Even though it looks exactly the same as what our realtor members are doing, they don't have to have a license because they have what's an equitable interest in the property. That contract shows they have some kind of ownership interest in the property and you're exempted from the real estate licensing laws if you own the property. Okay, so we've got these people and, and where this really gets to be problematic is have you ever seen those advertisements that's like, hey, come to this seminar and learn how to make money in real estate with no capital. You don't have to have any money. You don't have to have a license that's where this comes from. And so they get people to, to, to go approach people. And we've seen some very abusive things happen where they're approaching people, maybe elderly folks who have lived in a house for a long time and maybe don't necessarily have the idea of what the market value may be. They're entering into these contracts, trying to turn around and sell that contract to somebody else. And then that seller shows up and somebody totally different at closing is buying the property. And again, these people are unregulated. There's absolutely nothing that protects the public in those circumstances if they do something wrong. And they build these contracts where they can just get out if they can't find somebody else to buy it. So that's been a real problem that we've seen in the industry and it's been growing. It's been growing nationally. And so we actually ran a bill this year that requires those people to have a license. So they can still do that. They can have that business model 
but they're going to have to do the same thing that every other person that's helping somebody to buy or sell real estate does. They're going to have to have that license. They're going to have to follow the law. And if they don't, there's consequences for that with the real estate commission. So that was our big thing that we pushed this year, purely out of a public protection standpoint, because that's what the real estate commission does is they protect the public. And these were people who just, there was no oversight, no regulation whatsoever. And so again, we didn't want to necessarily say you can't do this type of business model, but you need to have a license because you're doing the same thing that a lot of other licensees are. Yeah, that's wild. Well, and, and something that has popped up that has some disproportional effects to um, black and brown folks, particularly, um, are the, hey, we'll buy your land kind of folks who probably are unregulated and are offering people cash for their homes for a fraction of the cost that their homes are actually worth. And I know one concern that I have is that um, those folks have a home that may be worth $100,000 and now they're selling it for 40,000. And then they try to get back into the market to try to even rent a home. <laughs> and now there's this saturation to where people can't find a place to live, right? And so it creates this conundrum. And so um, I'm glad to hear that you are tackling um, comparable issues of, of people abusing systems. But um, I hope in the future, there could be something even deeper to prevent people from being taken advantage of um, in their homes. I'll tell you this if this is not a perfect opportunity for me to advertise why people should be using a realtor, this is it. Because first of all, we didn't explain what a realtor is. Just because you have a real estate license does not mean you're a realtor. A realtor is somebody who voluntarily decides to be a part of our organization, the association of realtors. And when they do that, they go above and beyond what the real estate commission laws say. And they also subscribe to our code of ethics. And one of the things in our code of ethics that is directly on point to what you're saying is it is ethically prohibited for a realtor to mislead somebody as to the market value of their property. If I'm not a realtor and I don't have a license, I can tell you whatever you, whatever I think you want to hear that'll make me a good deal. But if I'm a realtor, I'm ethically obligated and we enforce that. Like we as an association on top of what the real estate commission does, we'll take complaints. We will issue sanctions against people for violating that code of ethics. And it's something we take very seriously. And that's a reason why if somebody's just approaching you and saying, Hey, I want to buy your property for X, you know, go talk to a realtor. I mean, what the worst case scenario is they're going to probably give you a free you know, market analysis of what they think your property might be worth. And you at least have some extra data and you can generally get that free from any realtor in your community. They will absolutely do that for you. And they will not take advantage of you in that respect because they can't, I mean, they're, they're risking their reputation. They're risking their, their livelihood if they do it, because there are a lot of unscrupulous people out there who aren't regulated. And that's something, you know, put my little pitch in for why you should go talk to a realtor if you're going to do a property transaction. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Um, and there was also another bill about uh, prohibiting cities or municipalities from requiring registration of real property and collecting fees. Can you describe that? Yeah, so that's something that was enacted quite some time ago. I say quite some time. I don't remember. It's been a handful of years ago. What we had is is municipalities were wanting to do registries of, of rental properties and vacant you know, vacant properties, and they were going to charge fees. You had to go to the municipality, you had to pay a fee, you had to register if you had a rental property. And if it was vacant for more than like 30 days or something, then you had to go and give them another fee and 
you know, it just was starting to be, is this a thing to actually protect people or is this a way to generate revenue? Right. And so some legislation was passed that said, you can't do this, right? We basically said, you cannot create a registry. You cannot charge fees for it or anything like that. Well, we had, uh, I think it was the Oklahoma, Oklahoma Municipal League approached us this year and said, look, we've got some problems with vacant properties, right? We get dilapidated properties. They're out of state owners, or we're having trouble tracking them down as to, or if there's a, a fire or somebody dies in the property, I mean, who knows what, all kinds of things can happen. And we struggle to find these people sometimes. And so we don't want to make money off of it. We don't want to charge anybody, but we do create a list of properties and who their actual owners are in case we need to contact these people. So we work with them to try to, okay, what's our middle ground, right? And we were like, we don't want you charging fees for it because you're just, I mean, if, if all you need is a list, you know, we, we don't like the idea of you charging landlords because that's going to get passed on to the tenant anyway. And it just creates a, a bigger problem with affordable housing. But we also wanted to make sure that it was confidential because we didn't want somebody coming and saying, oh, I want to do an open records request of this entire list of all these these properties and use it as a marketing list for these these you know their their contact information and things like that so we tried to compromise and that was what that bill was this year to allow municipalities to have this list to help protect their properties updated properties vacant properties if there's an issue with the property those kinds of things and so that's what we were trying to fix with that so it's a little bit of a middle ground that we reached there and i think is gonna gonna make both parties a little bit happier at that point excellent well, Jeffrey, it's been uh, a delight to have you on the show today. Thanks for being here and illuminating us I, as three people who um, have a vested interest in this. Scott just sold his. Bailey's in the process of building one. And uh, at some point, I'm going to have to help my father-in-law sell his soon. Uh, so everyone, I think, is starting to pay closer attention to the housing market. And uh, I think this is very well-timed. Good luck on your day at the Capitol next week. And if uh, if listeners want to find out more about the Oklahoma Association of Realtors, what's the web address they could go to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can check us out. We're on social media everywhere. So you can follow our Facebook page. We put a lot of great content out there. Instagram, you can find us at OK Realtors and online at okrealtors.com. Uh, again, we've got a lot of great content out there, whether you're a realtor or not. Uh, so check that out. We do a, We do a weekly podcast as well. So check that out too. Uh, so we got a lot of things going and, and we want to be a good uh, steward of property of people who are trying to buy and sell houses. And so use a realtor, contact your realtor, talk to them. And man, I just appreciate you guys so much giving us the opportunity to come on and share a little bit about what we're doing and what we've got going on. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, great. Thanks. Have a great weekend. Thanks you guys too. You know, Andy, <clears throat> you mentioned that, you know, I, I just went through a couple of real estate transactions and Bailey's by you may have to take out a mortgage to build this shed you're talking about. The way I know. Price. Yeah, no kidding. You know, I mean, they've been out of stock and it's going to cost me because the shed, I'm, I think I'm just going to do a package deal. And so far, those prices haven't changed um, because they probably put them together months ago. But it's going to cost me about as much money just to buy the because the floor and the roof are not included in the price. And so just the. Uh, the cost of that is going to be almost equal to the rest of the shed, which is absurd. And I heard somebody tell me yesterday that it, that two by fours are nine bucks. Yeah. Yeah. For a two by four. That's insane. Yeah. I know one thing that I do have concern of is with the increased cost of, of lumber and, and other supplies and also like how um, in short supply it is, you know, making sure that the home I'm building will still be, 
completed on time. So, yeah. I mean, I, I'm expecting my home to be finished, you know, towards the end of this year, and hopefully it's still on track for that. So beyond the, the cost of things, it could also put um, a lot of homes that are being built or other uh, projects that require, you know, lumber and other um, supplies to, to be behind schedule. Yeah, that's the other thing. I was trying to buy a box of nails and the nails were all sold out. They had two in stock at Lowe's. And in the in the time that I had added them to my cart um, before I finished adding things, it was gone. And I was like, man, I have to get a different uh, a different box of nails. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's we're starting to see that the trickle down economic effects of COVID in lots of ways. Now, I, people have been talking about construction stuff for a while, but, um, you know, even this week, uh, the same week, this I mean, just yesterday, the CDC announced that vaccinated folks don't necessarily need to wear masks inside or outside, except in very like close areas like airplanes and hospitals and stuff. Uh, but I, we've seen um, the impact of what we talked about with the impact of COVID on the real estate market. Um, we've I was having a conversation today with some uh, restaurant owners and their struggle to find employees right because people restaurants shut down people had to get work they found jobs elsewhere in oklahoma many of them found jobs in the medical marijuana industry uh and so they can be a, a they can be a bud tender and make 15 bucks an hour which is a more stable source of income for them than living off tips being a bartender at a bar that has been closed for the last you know six months or a year uh, and so i think as we at Scott and I were discussing inflation this morning at seven o'clock in the morning. I think like as we start seeing those, these effects of COVID, then I, I believe if you go back and listen to our podcast from about a year ago, we would talk about how there was that initial, you know, crash in the market and it rebounded and, you know, everything kind of got pushed off. And now that, that we are physically starting to recover in many ways, we're starting to see those other lingering impacts um, move across the country and, and into Oklahoma. And so I'm including on oil and gas, apparently. So please, when it yeah. comes to um, buying stuff, do not replicate <laughs> the toilet paper situation with lumber and nails and other things, because we're already seeing people do it with gas of putting gas in plastic bags and other things trying to stock up. So let's, let's be, be rational here and not um, panic purchase. Yeah, man, you know, we may have to have a podcast about cyber attacks, but that whole deal is scary AF. Um, the fact that they shut down that pipeline, that was, a. I don't, I don't think it's got enough attention by people we know because we, it didn't hit us here in Oklahoma, but Lord, if they, if they were able to, shut down a pipeline through Oklahoma using computers, um, you, we would come to our knees as a state in a hurry. So, well, I mean, and because of all the pipelines that run through Cushing, this, the country would come to their knees. I yeah. mean, like yeah. the colonial pipeline that runs up and down the East coast is the, is kind of the main artery of the East coast. But I mean, some huge percentage of all the oil and natural gas that gets transported, transported in the United States comes through Cushing, uh, comes through Cushing, Oklahoma. Like, man, if they hit, I hope they're not listening. If they hit Cushing, if Dark Side hit Cushing, uh, that'd be that'd be bad news bears. If uh, I'll, I'll monitor our downloads for Russia and see if they increase in the next week, and then <laughs> we can alert alert the authorities. So, in addition to to the pandemic, we have to worry about you know people 
yeah, cyber attacks, cyber attacks, and, and into systems and things. So always I'll something, man. Always I'll tell you what. I'll tell you. I'll tell you guys what I'm excited about. In fact, excited isn't even the right word. I'm relieved. You know what kind of you know what kind of relieved I am, guys. No, I'm I'm tax relieved. Oh, we got a because we got a budget this week, and we have and we have tax relief in our in our budget uh, because, as we all know, the problems that are faced in Oklahoma do not come from a chronic underfunding of core services throughout the state but they come because our population the taxes are just too damn high but uh, well, and the state legislature is going to fix that for us well and, and the oklahoma policy institute um alongside um taxpayers for a better oklahoma held a town hall yesterday um where we talked about uh, the budget proposal and then we had about 11 or 12 lawmakers who participated in the breakout town hall sessions where Oklahomans could ask questions directly of different state lawmakers. And Paul Shen gave uh, a great point related to uh, the proposals and the tax cuts, because I think in total, um, just for the reduction in the corporate income tax and then the reduction in uh, individual income taxes, it amounts to about $400 million that'll come out of our state revenues for that. And so he mentioned that, that that's a permanent takeaway of funds because right now things are good, but we know that Oklahoma hit some really cyclical moments in the design of our tax structure. And so, and over the past 12 years, we've had several revenue failures. So what happens if things aren't good two or three years from now? We now have permanently taken away um, pieces of our revenue sources that'll make it more difficult because we know it's harder to raise taxes and it's easier to cut them, but we can't restore them easily. And so that's definitely one big concern that, yeah, times seem good now that we can make this decision, but it could come back to bite us in a few years. Now, see, Bailey, this is the thing. Let me explain to you how an economy works, okay? What you do is is you cut taxes and then everybody spends that money and then they spend so much, the economy grows. It trickles down, if you will, into this rising tide that lifts all the boats. And what will happen is, what will happen is the state of Oklahoma will actually get more revenue from this tax increase because everybody's spending that extra money. That's what's going to happen. That's how it works. Isn't that how history has shown us in Oklahoma? That's how it works? That's what they, that's what they tell us. <laughs> the last time for just for reference the last time that the state legislature cut the personal income tax rate by a quarter of a percent it led to a 1.3 billion dollar budget shortfall so oops, oops. that doesn't so, sound like a big because those triggers all. were put in place that's right several sessions ago so that's right yeah so yeah so the budget plan that has uh, hasn't passed yet they haven't voted on it right they just announced it so this is always the thing too, right? They announced a budget agreement, but they won't actually hear it in committee or vote on it until next week. And so things can still change. Well, and and we had for my room in the, the town hall that I um, facilitated in our breakout, we had uh, minority leader Kay Floyd, and she gave a great but depressing um, explanation of this process. So, I mean, 
we're now in the 98th day of session um, and many lawmakers, you know, were just now seeing the budget like as of, you know, like yesterday, morning. yesterday morning. Right. And so the process of how the budget was made was by uh, the leaders of each of the branches. So the Speaker of the House, the President Pro Tem, the governor, and then the appropriations chairs of both the House and the Senate. So they came together to talk about, you know, what the House wants versus what the Senate wants, or at least what their leadership wants versus what the priorities are of the governor, because they have to know what would the governor sign into law, right? Or what would he veto and things like that. And so the five of them came together and decided a budget rather than the entire legislature or input from the public. And so uh, one of the, the concerns is that, A, there's just not a lot of transparency and opportunities to weigh in on the budget prior to um, the budget being released. But secondly, uh, the thing that, that Minority Leader Floyd brought up is that there's 10 days of session left constitutionally because sine die is coming up. And you want to leave enough time for uh, the governor's office to be able to uh, have that full five days to decide whether it's going to be signed into law or any changes need to be made, et cetera. So really, they have through next week to discuss any changes, um, to get it through the process and then to the governor's desk to ensure that everything can happen that needs to happen before Signy die. And so um, we, we certainly need more transparency through the process, right? In, in, in instituting that in our systems. Right. Well, and so a couple of things strike me. One, they didn't even invite anyone from the minority party, right? And think because they don't need to based on number of votes, but just out of respect for the process, like, wouldn't it be nice if the majority party, whichever one it is, if they have a supermajority, would at least invite people to come in, even if, I mean, they're going to come in knowing that they don't really have much sway, but it would be symbolic in lots of ways to at least have them at the table for a drink, right? They can just come for chips and salsa and then leave before the meal. I don't know, whatever they got to do. But well, it Andy, the, the piece that is listed as the compromise piece to give the minority the win is the earned income tax credit, yeah, right? Yeah. And so I, I, I would say that the, the majority would likely argue that, hey, Democrats have been talking about this. We put that in there. That's bipartisanship. Right. That's right. That's right. You ask for something and we gave it to you. We also then, you know, we cut taxes, which also helps everybody. Except, I I, don't, I haven't done the math yet, but I remember last time. I guess that's about the same. The last time that they cut taxes by a quarter of a percent, it saved me like thirty four dollars or thirty seven dollars or something, right? Out of a whole year, thirty seven dollars, and which is, I mean, I like having money in my pocket, but that's three dollars a month, right? Roughly that would be divided out, which I'm not going to notice, right? And yes, it's important for people then. Um, but if you make less money, it's probably a smaller amount of money you're going to get back, right? And collectively, my $34 and your $34 and Scott's $34 and the other however many millions of taxpayers are in the state, $34 put together is a big chunk. In fact, it's uh, it's like $110 million altogether. Um, the, oh, no, excuse me, $170 million for that. It's 110 for the corporate income tax rate cut, um, which is not 
you know, Speaker McCall wanted to eliminate the corporate income tax. They're only going to cut it from 6% to 4%, um, most of which that money goes out of state. It's typically corporations who are owned, you know, large corporations that are in California or overseas even who would be saving money, not necessarily Oklahoma companies. Um, and then the, because it's, there's some other stipulations on how big a corporation has to be to pay it in the first place. And then um, the personal income tax rate, dropping it from 5% to four and a quarter percent or four and three quarters percent. Um, yeah, it's going to lose 66 million this year or this coming year. And then 170 um, for each year after that, $170 million. And so 34 bucks to me is not a big deal. $170 million for the state is an enormous amount of money that could, that could go, right? Like I would happily throw in 34 bucks if it meant collectively we get some money, right? This is how you pitch in for pizza. Everyone puts in two bucks and you get a nice pizza, right? Everyone puts in 34 bucks and you get a nice state. Well, and Andy, and one of the highlights of the budget that continues to be referenced um, in the coverage that I'm seeing is there's increased funding for education and it's being pitched as a historic investment in education. And so although there is more money put towards education, that doesn't mean that there's an adequate investment in education, right? It doesn't mean that all the needs have been covered because that $34 that you mentioned, that's, you know, you're, you'll be getting back. Our $34 altogether could have increased counselors in schools because our student to counselor ratio is still off the charts, right? It could have increased the pay for support staff in schools, right? Because they haven't received a pay raise, although teachers have received a pay raise, right? I mean, there's just so many other things that are state. We could add more money for mental health services. And I mean, there's just a number of things um, that could help Oklahoma strengthen its services for its people um, that we could use those dollars to. So just, you know, when you're hearing, yeah, we made a historic investment, that doesn't mean that we made all the investment that's needed to help Oklahoma get ahead in education or other and things. Again, as I have said any number of times, simply restoring cuts that you made previously does not count as an investment, right? Like if I had if I had a thousand dollars in my 401k and then I took that thousand dollars out. Um, because I felt like I deserved to give myself a dividend and I spent it on, I don't know, something. But then I was like, oh man, I need to start saving for my retirement. And I put a thousand dollars in my 401k. Um, I haven't made an historic investment in my 401k, right? I've brought it back to baseline, um, which is, which is really where we are. So every time I hear this, like, and I'm not talking to you, Bailey, of course, I'm talking about the, you know, the, the legislators who just like, man, I feel, I feel, I feel like the, especially the R's that were, uh, that were in the, uh, in the uh, legislature for house bill 1010 XX that uh, passed that. I mean, they're going to, they're going to be 50 years from now talking about, you remember that time when I was 27 in the state legislature and we passed we passed a tax increase. Like they, I mean, they talk, I mean, I feel like not a day goes by where we don't hear them like crow about something they did. What's it been two years ago now, three years ago. 
um, um, as though that's going to fix all the problems that our state faces for the next 10 years. Well, and the use of the word historic is always uh, a, a bit inflationary, right? But because just because it happened, it doesn't make it historic. No one is remembering. We're not talking about uh, the, we're not even talking about the historic budget shortfall from three years ago or four years ago, right? Like the, I think that is a, that kind of rhetoric wears me out. That's what I'm saying. Well, and I'll also add too that like when we're talking about tax increases, it puts us more at risk to have to go back to conversations about raising taxes, right? But when we don't cut <laughs> and we invest, then it makes us less likely to have to have those conversations about taxes increases over time, right? right. And so um, that's one of the the complaints about the legislature as a whole, right? Um, they're, they're, the, the, the body thinks about the moment, right? The moments that we're in. They legislate based on the time that they are there, not 20 years from now, right? right? right. <laughs> yes. We talked about that a bunch of times. Like, why is the conversation always about, like, the next year? Like, we're putting more money into it right now and not in the implications of these decisions 10 years from now, right? And that's um, because they because, won't be because elections are every other year. That's why. Right. But you know, even in Congress, right, in the federal level, the mm -hmm. Congressional Budget Office releases the 10-year impact for everything. And it is reported as such, right? Like NPR will say, you know, this plan will cost uh, you know, 1.3 trillion dollars over 10 years, right? We don't ever even in this, it's like it'll cost 67 million this year and 110 every year after that. But it's not like we could say this will cost the state a billion dollars over 10 years. And that seems like a much stronger messaging point for the public to be like, stand up and pay attention to like, oh, snap, that's a lot of money. Yeah. Now, what I will say is, because I know we got to roll. One of the good things that the legislature did do is they did put some money in the rainy day fund. So they restored that to, I think, to have a, a, a valuation of about a billion now. So, well, if, if they were, if they pass this budget in the way that they've designed in this current plan, then the rainy day fund will, will be replenished. So. Yeah, partially. Yeah. Oh, Scott, you're muted. And restoring the refundability of the earned income tax credit, like that's not a small thing. Like we've been we've been yakking about that for years on the show. Like that is an important thing that they did, and that's a big deal. And they are to be commended for doing that. But it doesn't mean that we won't hassle them for all the other stupid shit. Or when they when they make it non-refundable in two years because they're short on money. Right. A um, couple of things. We did have House and Senate JCAB meet today. Um, it was happening kind of right before we started the show. So I'm sure we'll recap that next week. Um, what else, guys? Anything else happened this week? I'm sure it's going to be a whirlwind of activity next week. Yeah. Uh, well, relatedly, um, Oklahoma Watch is suing Epic Charter Schools for violations of uh, the Open Records Act. Um, so that is ongoing, but that's super interesting um, because we've talked about epic a lot on the show um but because they were trying they're trying to charge um oklahoma watch a legal review fee so basically their the reporter jennifer palmer submitted an open records request and they said well our attorney needs to review this and it's going to cost like ten thousand dollars for him to review this request um, and that is not in the law the oklahoma records act uh, only allows for the actual cost it incurs for an, an entity to provide the record. So like 
copying costs, but they people always try to inflate copying costs and they always lose in court because you can't just, you can't say it's 50 cents a page, right? You can say it's a reasonable amount of money, the actual cost it required to copy things or the amount of time it takes uh, personnel to fulfill that records request. But in this case, it's not that much and there's absolutely nothing in the law that that would even suggest that a legal review fee is reasonable. So uh, I look forward to seeing how that plays out over the next few months. And I hate to end on a sad note because I'm pretty sure this happened after our recording last Friday, but um, Governor Stitt did sign House Bill 1775, the bill that would ban public colleges and universities from requiring diversity trainings and it would ban K through 12 schools from certain concepts on on race and gender. So he did sign it. And just uh, today, right before we started recording, um, it was announced that Governor Stitt and the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission have mutually agreed to part ways. So he is uh, officially off that commission because uh, they were very angry, rightly so, at him signing this bill. So I think, is that the same commission that that Senator Lankford was on yes. then stepped off of after he... Um, well, no, he's still on the commission. Is he really? I thought he was going to step off. I don't think the so. January 6th. I know they there was a lot of... There was a call for it, but he's still on the commission. Oh, okay. Well, so. I misspoke. Well, and, and then I guess maybe the last note to end on, um, Governor Stitt owned PETA and had a... That was funny. I'll say it. Like, that was a funny... <laughs> <laughs> the sign. I, I don't know. And I, I said owned facetiously, but yeah. um, the PETA had a billboard put up in a random part of Oklahoma City that said um, that called Governor Stitt a meathead uh, because he had a meat all week week on the week that I think it was Colorado had a meatless week to try to promote people from consuming meat as frequently as we do. Um, but Governor Stitt wanted to promote the cattle industry and use that as an opportunity to have a cookout to grill some um, steaks underneath that sign. So it was a good publicity stunt. I mean, yeah, if you're the governor of if you're the governor of Oklahoma, that's a that's a slam dunk, and you'll take that every day and twice on Sunday, right? I mean, that like they should they showed that, and uh, I mean. The, from the time it hit Twitter, I think it was 10 minutes before our governor Stitt's comm teams was like, and we're having a cookout. Like, uh, now, I will tell you, there was a funny, there was, there were some funny pictures of, uh, of the governor looking at the grill like it was a freaking spaceship. Um, it, did, it did seem clear that uh, the governor is not used to, uh, I mean, my impression was it didn't seem like the governor's used to manning the grill himself. But you know, I I, I wasn't there. Maybe 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 it was delicious. <laughs> it was. I I feel like of all the um, activist groups out there, there's some cross partisan um, support for people ragging on PETA. Well, I mean, you know, just I I know conservatives and liberals alike who are like, you know, we have very different policy ideology. Except none of us like PETA. Like that's just as a group. Maybe maybe they support the causes, but as a group, they um, don't always support their their antics. I'll say. Who knows though, right? All right. Well, uh, guys, thanks so much for being here, listeners. Thank you for being here as well. Ooh, what a week! Maybe next week, I guess we'll have a final budget, and they may maybe out of there. 
Uh, and then we'll take a week to regroup and come back with some new topics for the rest of the year. Bailey, thanks for being here. Thank you, Andy. Scott, thanks for being here. Wouldn't miss it. Listeners, decisions are made by those who show up. Find a way to show up this week. And have a good one. <laughs> <laughs>